Hello and welcome to the European Lens with me, Frances Fitzgerald. Today we're looking at the rise of disinformation and fake news. We've been hearing a lot about that recently. It's nothing new, of course, but with the arrival of social media, information is presented in such a way it's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish truth from lies and to identify accurate information from disinformation. It may not always be tangible or completely obvious, but disinformation is becoming an enormous problem. And it can take many forms, from conspiracy theories to Russian interference in Western elections to the simple spreading of rumours. It basically tries to manipulate people into thinking a certain way. Today, we'll examine the disinformation problem in Europe and worldwide, and we'll look at the role of social media platforms and what do we need to do in Ireland and the EU to tackle this problem. I'll be speaking to a colleague, Sandra Cagnetti, MEP. She's a former foreign minister of Latvia and EU commissioner, and she's heading up the new Parliament Committee on Disinformation and Foreign Interference. I'll also be speaking to Peter Pomerenza, who is working with the BBC and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. But first, let's hear from Mark Little, CEO and co-founder of Kinzen, a former CEO and founder of Storyful, and of course, the former RT Washington correspondent and primetime presenter. I began by asking him just how big a problem is disinformation? I suppose the first thing to get out of the way is just the definition. You know, people hear a lot of different words to describe this problem. You know, we're not talking about people who are just getting things wrong by accident on the internet. Disinformation is, is organized campaigns of deception that are intended to have some sort of impact in the real world. And they tend to be people who are conspiracy theorists, for example, who are against vaccines, or as we've seen in the United States, politically motivated groups who are trying to change an outcome, or sometimes governments. And so it's very clear that what the problem we're talking about here is people trying to organize lies on the internet in a way that manipulates the rest of us. So it used to be something that we would see way back when I was at Storyful during the, for example, the Syrian civil war. We could see both sides using social media to try hoodwink people into thinking uh, you know, that something was actually true and it was a lie. Now, it's become way more important in recent years. We all know, for example, what's happened with Donald Trump and his supporters in the United States trying to hijack platforms like Twitter and Facebook and the big ones like YouTube. But as more and more of us go online in the last year because of COVID, you know, we're all out there buying you know, our, our books on, on Amazon or we're out there ordering clothes or we're involved in fitness groups online. And increasingly what's going to happen is the problem will get worse before it gets better. Because anywhere there's a conversation or there's a community or there's something happening that's causing discussion, the people spreading disinformation infect those conversations. So remarkably, we were seeing, for example, the QAnon movement in the United States hijacking conversations about yoga on Instagram, um, trying to promote T-shirts that were promoting extremist ideologies on Amazon. And so more and more, disinformation is starting to kind of seep out from these dark corners of the internet. They go onto the big platforms, but they're also out there in so many different parts of the internet. And as I say, I think the problem gets worse before it gets better, even with the kind of strong action we saw from Twitter and Facebook in response to Donald Trump uh, over these past few weeks. How capable, Mark, are the platforms of dealing with this? I mean, have they dealt with it effectively? It seems to me they haven't. And I'm wondering, you know, are they capable of dealing with it or do governments have to step in as well? 
It's a great question. So first of all, you know, having worked for Twitter and knowing this for a long time, you know, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg did not set out to become the biggest news distribution networks in history, but they got to that stage. The really underlying problem here is, is the business models of these platforms and also the algorithms that are all optimized to cause us all emotion. So remember what they're trying to do essentially is they're advertising platforms. They're not news publishers in the traditional sense. They're just trying to make us all so emotional that we'll buy stuff and that will be a good environment for advertising. And that's the essential problem that there is machinery operating in the background that's promoting a lot of this disinformation, misinformation, outrageous stuff, because that's actually what is good for business. And in some ways, it's a bit like the old days of the tabloids where the more extreme the headline, the more people would buy the paper. This is just at a scale we've never seen in history. So even with the best will in the world, and, and I have to say, I know some of the people on the platforms, there's a lot of really good people working hard at this. There's a massive structural problem. Now, the second issue is, even when they make the right decision, like in the case, I believe, of deplatforming Donald Trump and the QAnon people, should it be in the hands of Silicon Valley billionaires? Should decisions that have a huge impact, not just on the safety of the rollout of vaccinations, for example, which is one of the one area I would have major worries about the impact of disinformation, should the decisions to protect that be in the hands of these tech billionaires, or should we put it in the hands of government? I think putting in the hands of government is the wrong decision. However, we should have create some form of civic society groups that have oversight or we've other areas of internet life like copyright infringement and spam that do have some sort of institution that oversees the application of the rules. So let's just think about this. If we started to say that the things we already know that uh, there's rules about in real life should be applied to the internet platforms, what's the regulation that's going to ensure that we have oversight, that the decisions are not just being taken by a small group of tech billionaires or different governments who potentially could use those regulations for censorship, what's the middle ground? And that's where Europe, and I think Ireland as well, is going to be so important. Um, and that's where I think the, the impending regulations, the Digital Services Act that have been developed by the Commission and will be debated by the Parliament, they could be the critical next step because I think they do you know, potentially um, you know, go in the compromise in the middle between giving the power to the tech platforms and giving power to governments who might use this for censorship. Isn't it inevitable though, Mark, that you're giving, uh, even with the DSA and the DMA, that you're giving effectively power uh, to legislators to have a role in this? You're not suggesting, are you, that there's no role for legislators? No, not at all. But I think the real problem we'd have is what we've seen starting to emerge in places like, uh, you know, in certain parts of Asia, where we have, you know, authoritarian regimes passing fake news laws, right, which are ostensibly uh, aimed at stopping disinformation, but are being used to suppress dissent. And we have to realize the danger here of, of overregulation. We have to be very precise about going after disinformation at scale. That is the things that infect mainstream conversations about vaccines or COVID without stifling conversations about controversial topics. So we've seen when some of the platforms have tried to automate decision-making that they've taken down conversations about, for example, Middle East policy in Palestine and places like that. So the idea that we would just purely have regulators or lawmakers deciding these, these things, I think is very dangerous. 
what I think we have to look at is similar to the way that, for example, we have the World Health Organization, which coordinates international responses to pandemics, or the fact that we have so many uh, oversight bodies for every industry that may, for example, control the safety of the products on our shelves or food labeling. That, I think, is the way we should approach this. We need a form of regulation that's putting the oversight in the hands of real experts. And there's a lot of people out there that I would bring into this conversation. Uh, if I was a lawmaker, I would want to be identifying the civil society groups that could go and investigate the algorithms, the business model that might provide a kind of an oversight board for decisions that are controversial about free speech on the platforms. So yes, take it out of the hands of the platforms, but I would not like to see this being legislated country by country, because I think that could be the biggest danger of the free speech. Uh, it would be greater potentially than the problem of disinformation. And remember, in the end of the day, what these crazy groups on the internet are looking for is they're looking for to be martyrs. And so ironically, by having a heavy handed set of regulations, you could actually strengthen the groups that you're trying to limit. And, and therefore, there's a danger there as well. Hasn't it been a bit of a Wild West, though, if you if you think about uh, the way social platforms, social media platforms have developed and the influence they've had over the last 10 years? Well, it's funny. Yes and no. Uh, in the area of disinformation, you're right. Yes. But there's other areas of regulation online that have developed and, and evolved that I think provide us with a good model. So, for example, if you're a musician or you make a movie, you have a, a way of stopping people from pirating your 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 basically your intellectual and your uh, your sort of property, right? It's the DCMA. It's that it's basically taking down copyright infringement, and there's oversight there. There's a role for the courts. So, for example, if someone posts a video with a bit of music on it. Uh, someone might say, take that content down. There's a way of arbitrating those claims. So I think that's an example of how we could apply that model to disinformation. And, you know, you're right earlier on to ask me, could the platforms do something about this? They also have a lot of technology that they apply for things like spam, pornography. Um, so there's areas as well that we could work with the platforms um, to innovate in these areas. And the final part of it, Francis, I think is media literacy. Um, you know, the, the study shows that older people tend to be the ones that spread most disinformation because they're not uh, critically thinking about this new form of media the way that my daughter, for example, who's 15 is. So I think there could be huge investment in, in teaching people to be the people who flatten the curve of disinformation. So if I have to put it like this, I think we start off with oversight and regulation that gives a role for the experts in adjudicating some of this copying some of the areas around copyright infringement that we've already got the rules online and for bringing them into disinformation investing heavily in innovation and you know fact checking for example every country should have some support for people fact checking and then media literacy to teach people to have some critical thinking about what they're seeing uh, online so these are ways that we can you know turn the wild west to a place where there are rules um, there are places online that are already heavily regulated and I think let's come back to this principle. If it's illegal in the real world, it should be illegal online. And our job over the next, I think, two to three years should be to, to make that reality apply to disinformation as it does to other areas of Internet businesses. We'll come back to Mark later in the episode, but I'd like to bring Peter Promarensev in now. Peter is a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics, my old alma mater. He's a political science journalist with the BBC. 
and he's author of This Is Not Propaganda and Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. Intriguing titles. I recently heard Peter speak to the European Parliament's new special committee on foreign interference and disinformation, and he was absolutely fascinating. I asked Peter to what extent he believes that Russia is actively trying to sow discord and disinformation in the EU. It isn't a question of belief. I mean, there's there's lots of research on the subject. Russia itself openly says that it sees information war as something that, that is a foreign policy priority for it. And it's very important to understand when they talk about information psychological warfare, they don't just mean media or social media. It includes every kind of non-kinetic foreign policy activities. So assassinations, corruption, business, it's political warfare. They see political warfare as their way to kind of, you know, compete in the world. They're very unlikely to, I hope, to ever kind of like, you know, invade an EU country like they have Ukraine or Georgia. But, you know, political warfare falls way below NATO Article 5. And um, there's zero costs to it as far as they're concerned, or very nearly zero costs to it. It's cheap. And, um, you know, it can be used to sow discord. That's a very general term. It can be used for very, very concrete aims as well. So it's just how they see, you know, competition in the 21st century. And I suppose the big problem is that we don't really, we haven't really thought through how we even define the difference between legitimate and illegitimate political warfare. What's the goal, Peter? I mean, we could talk about very sort of vague general goals like um, sowing discord or just undermining the credibility of democracies. I mean, if there's one meta-narrative that Russia is obsessed with is to show that sort of whatever their system is, is no worse than democracy. So it's constantly to show that the dream of, you know, democratic process is, is an illusion. And then there's very, very specific issues. You know, let's, uh, let's try to stop sanctions um, against Russia post-Crimea. Um, let's try to make sure that uh, Nord Stream 2 happens. It can be both very concrete things and then these sort of very general things. I mean, I suppose the dream is for, you know, the Russia's old dream of a Berlin, Paris, Moscow axis. That's an old sort of geopolitical fantasy that, that Moscow aspires towards. And maybe on a kind of philosophical level, um, they don't like multinational organizations. They like great power competition. They think they can deal bilaterally with great effectiveness with different EU states, with Hungary or with Italy or France. But when the EU clubs together and, you know, it starts to impose various restrictions on on Russian uh, on Russian activity there they get really annoyed how, how big a threat uh, is this to European democracy to Western democracy that's a very hard question to sort of quantify you know is it a three percent threat a five percent threat look Russia is uh, a belligerent and in many ways reactionary foreign policy power right next to the EU it sees itself in kind of at times in competition, at times, you know, even more uh, a state of kind of like almost political warfare with, with the EU or with different European states. This is a permanent thing. The great threat is that, is that, you know, the EU hasn't really thought through what on earth they do about this. So as long as the EU is completely naked 
to this threat, it's, it's going to be a big threat. It's, it's, it's just a reality. So, so it's very hard for me to say, say, you know, what the threat is to European democracy. But I suppose, ideally, Russia would like to see an EU that is incapable of ever acting in unison or reaching any big decisions. Um, that's a vulnerability of the EU anyway. So in that sense, you know, Russia is striking right at the core of the project. The social media platforms, of course, give access to much of this information. And the question is, what can we do about this? Now, we have the uh, the new legislation directives coming from the European Union, the DSA and the DMA, Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. Um, what's your sense of how useful they will be? Is that the right direction, Peter? There's two problems here, and I always like to separate them out. One of them is a Russia problem. Russia is a kind of, you know, uh, a belligerent foreign policy power, and and even whatever reforms we take in to change Facebook, it'll find other ways to 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 mess with us. That's just what it does. So we shouldn't think that just because we kind of like tighten up our rules about disinformation on social media platforms, the Russian problem goes away. But we need to do this anyway. Um, we need to think very seriously about what is a democratic information environment in the 21st century, partly because extremists and hostile states are taking advantage of it uh, the way it is now. So that's that's one of the motivations. But it's also more generally, we need a healthy information environment where deliberative democracy can happen, where we can have, you know, the things we've always taken for granted, the kind of the unwritten constitution of, of knowledge and political culture without which democracy doesn't exist. I mean, democracy is also democratic culture, which means, you know, having evidence-driven debates and uh, listening to each other and not dwelling in little ghettos of fear and hate, which make any kind of public discourse impossible. So we just have to do that anyway. But obviously, a big stimulus is, is the actions of countries like Russia. I think the EU Democracy Action Plan, DSA, DMA, are by far and away the most advanced, most comprehensive attempt to make sense of the challenges in front of us. So it goes all the way from the need to kind of like, you know, break down monopolies, which is important for the economy, though won't necessarily change discourse, through to the need for journalism. They actually say they want to fight disinformation. Um, they're, they're not quite sure how they're going to define it. And they talk about algorithmic, you know, how we need to do safety by design and, and algorithmic transparency. They talk a little bit about, you know, people's rights um, and what does it mean to have human rights online? It doesn't go far enough, in my opinion, but at least they've started this conversation. At least they've realized that this is actually critical to our future, which I think is already a big step forward. In your book, you talk about Russian troll farms. Can you tell me a bit more about them and their purpose? Well, just like troll farms anywhere, I mean, this is now a very widespread practice, whether they're cyber militias or online mobs or, or as in Russia, you know, we have this phenomenon of troll farms. I mean, I suppose they're interesting because they're kind of, they're not officially the state. These are huge, essentially, PR companies who get money from the state to fulfill various propaganda missions, to create thousands and thousands of online accounts to push forward the Kremlin message, both inside and outside the country, or to climb inside and impersonate people in, in Western countries, to climb inside various discourses and, and manipulate them in ways that suits the Kremlin. I mean, look, everybody does, not everybody, but a huge amount of countries now have some version of this. 
The Kremlin kind of pioneered using them as a foreign policy tool in a very brazen way. So that's what they do. And it's become almost a normalised part of political culture in Russia. Disinformation, particularly when it's led by a state like Russia, is a really serious threat. To find out what the EU are doing about the issue, let's welcome Sandra Caldietti. Sandra is a colleague of mine in the European Parliament, and of course, she's very experienced being a former Commissioner for Agriculture and a Foreign Minister for her country. And she's also working on the Committee on Disinformation that I mentioned. She's going to be the rapporteur for it. I first asked Sandra what the EU is doing to combat disinformation from Russia and other bad faith actors, as they're called. Thank you, uh, Francis, for inviting me to this um, uh, possibility to speak with the Irish uh, people about a country so far away, like Russia and the EU, uh, which is threatened by all sorts of um, disinformation campaigns, covered and overhandled by Russia. And um, it is true that European Union, regarding the Russia, has taken first steps to create new institutions and also to adapt existing ones to meet this challenge. Uh, first, what I would mention is uh, in, in year 2015, uh, EU established the Stratcom Task Force. It was a very small unit, and I would say that even the money was so small that member states supplied that unit with additional additional funds. But during their first year, they showed already how useful they are because they reported and refuted over 5,000 different cases of disinformation uh, on Ukraine, on the United States, on migration crisis. Remember 2015, that is the migration year in Europe. Uh, Daesh, Salisbury chemical weapons attack, um, and also the downing of the flight MH17. And all that disinformation was spread by different news operators coming from Russia. And the success of East Stratcom was such that um, in 2017, uh, European Union decided to fund uh, fund. Uh, two more task forces for the southern neighborhood and also for western Balkans. So that, that what I consider was the first step. You come from Latvia, Sandra. It's a member state that has suffered and been very vulnerable to foreign interference from Russia. Can you explain the extent of disinformation that you are experiencing in Latvia and how Latvia and the other Baltic states are working to counter this. It must be very challenging. Yeah, we have quite experience in it because since we uh, recovered our independence in 1990, we were really exposed to Russia's efforts to present uh, our state as a failed state and to highlight the problems and exaggerate them. We also have a population which is after occupation, uh, the consequence of occupation. There are quite 35 percent of uh, population which are of uh, Russian 
um, origin, I would say. They are majority citizens of Latvia and loyal citizens, but of course they are exposed to Russia's information space. And uh, that is quite a challenge for us. But uh, I should say that uh, the main discourses, uh, uh, narratives of disinformation, as I mentioned, uh, Latvia and also other Baltic states are aggressive, nationalistic, failed states. They are in severe decline since they separated from former space of Soviet Union. Second is that uh, NATO and EU, where we are uh, uh, members, uh, are dictating and using Baltic states, as well as, yes, United States, of course, are using us as a launchpad for uh, the future aggressions against Russia. And then there is a third narrative, which is um, about um, history. Latvia and Estonia, Lithuania, we were occupied. And uh, what Russia is doing, they are strengthening among their own population the belief that Baltic states is a sort of birthright of Russia's empire. And it's a very dangerous narrative because uh, you remember um, occupation of Crimea and annexation. Uh, that was also based on the same narrative. Looking at it from an EU perspective, we have the recently published Digital Service Act, as well as an action plan on democracy. And that suggests that we move from self-regulation of social media platforms. Will this make a difference? And how do you see this developing in the next year or two? Uh, it certainly will make a difference. Uh, Maybe I would say we have been a little bit too slow because we we really woke up. It was the year 2016. When I say we, I mean European Union. Uh, and it was after Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, that we realized the real extent of the influence on, on uh, human uh, beings, on their minds by targeted uh, information and other means and particularly by use of, of data analytically and individually uh, tailor-made messages. But the influence is immense. And I'm speaking about harmful content. Because what happened in the United States during four years and resulted as attack on Capitol, that was the harmful content, the messages which were all the time in the Twitter coming from the top and also distributed and also commented and um, supplied by uh, millions of American people. And with harmful content, you can influence the perception of reality. But it is very difficult to find the right measure to say it is illegal. And that's why it is important how we will uh, implement the needed legislation which is proposed in European Democracy Action Plan, which is also presented by Commission and Commissioner Jourova. Sandra, you're the rapporteur on this new committee on disinformation in the European Parliament. What do you expect to come out of that committee? And what area of recommendations would you see? 
In my report, what I am preparing, I see uh, several important uh, parts. And the first part, I see that it will be a sort of overview uh, what weaknesses do we have. And I would presume that quite extensive part will be on resilience and deterrence, because this also is something what we need, how to build up resilience of Europeans uh, to make them uh, uh, media literates, to make them fact-checkers, uh, uh, not to follow the false information and fake news, be skeptical and uh, to have all this, what can be provided by education. We also have to strengthen media support and to strengthen it fin uh, financially, but the problem is that we have to find the right balance between uh, how to keep their independence and how to help them uh, to be the voice of truth, which is important for the healthy democracy. And the last part, what I consider extremely uh, important, the recommendations. Um, and as an annex, some are saying that I have to better to include it in the report, because I, I think we need to make a sort of um, effort to put clearly the definitions. Uh, we, we are not uh, uh, authorized to define something globally, but we at least can explain what we exactly we mean by this or that term in the framework of the report itself. Otherwise, it would be misread. Back to Mark Little now, and I asked him if many people still aren't fully aware of exactly what's happening on the social media platforms that we all routinely use. It's not just, you know, people who have no training here. Like I, I've been in journalism and editorial for close to 35 years, and I get caught out sometimes. because the reason, And the reason for that is that these disinformation campaigns are designed to look like your friends, your family, a respectable journalistic outlet. The nature of this problem is that they are actually designed to fool us. So even the most experienced people like myself who you know, spent 10 years fact-checking and researching, you know, it's very difficult sometimes. So I don't blame anybody that wakes up one morning and sees there's a new cure for COVID um, and they suddenly think it's all been solved. Like there's, there's no reason for, for blaming or shaming people. Where I think what we can do is this critical thinking. The one thing everybody can do, and this is my great advice to everybody, is when you see something on the internet, that makes you feel, you know, in your tummy, that, that sense of either outrage or happiness or elation. Someone says something you really like or someone says something you really hate. They're the triggers for people to just take a breath, just let the emotion pass. And then do you want to share that? So the one big principle in all of this is to create a little bit of friction uh, for yourself personally. If you see something too good to be true, it's generally too good to be true. Uh, if you see someone sharing a friend or a a family member, something you know not to be true, you don't go back and shame them and say, how could you be fooled? You're like, hey, just want to point out to you something in, in compassion and charity and generosity. So there's a whole new way I think we have to live as digital citizens. That's about giving each other a pass and helping each other, supporting each other, as opposed to the early days of the internet, which was about shame and outrage. And I think that's probably even a greater task than regulation is to realize that the first wave of the internet uh, gave us this democratic promise. Everybody was equal. We could all get access to these platforms. The second wave of the internet gave the power 
to the dark anti-democratic forces. Well, how about a third wave in which we bring back a sense of solidarity? And I think this is a very European notion that gives us in Europe, I think, uh, the, the, to should, why we should be at the forefront and just teaching people to be a little bit more critical, help each other. Like, so for example, if you've got your crazy uncle or auntie who keeps sending YouTube videos, you know are lies, <laughs> you know, step up and, and say, hey, hey, auntie, grab Point it out, point it out. <laughs> yeah, but, but also don't shame them, just be compassionate and say, I think you might've got that wrong. Like I get a very emotional uh, LinkedIn message last night from a good friend of mine who lives in New Jersey. She said, you could not believe my brother, who is a senior banking executive, is a QAnon supporter. My sister lost her job and is now down the rabbit hole of support for the, you know, stop the steal of the election. These are well-educated uh, people in, you know, in very loving families who just disappear down these rabbit holes. And we've got to help those people who are more vulnerable wow. than ourselves. It's a big job. Uh, finally, Mark, was Brexit uh, influenced by disinformation campaigns? So, you know, again, disinformation, that is people manipulating. There's no question that a lot of the money that was being flowed into those campaigns was supporting, uh, pushing messages that were absolutely deceitful, you know, whether it was claims about the NHS or immigration. Um, I think what was more important than disinformation was just a, a sense of outrage that was fed by, by, you know, false information. But it was the kind of thing that I don't think we could say it's Russia. It's, you know, we, we couldn't pinpoint necessarily two or three uh, groups that were absolutely responsible for it. They were there. There were definitely people on the right wing in the, in the United Kingdom. There were definitely people, uh, state-sponsored actors were behind uh, some of the disinformation that was out there. But I think Brexit was more of a, a sense, you know, a, a symptom of an overall sense of a society that is driven by outrage, driven by emotion. Uh, obviously, with the social media environment we have, it's like throwing fuel on a flame. But the flame already existed. And I think this is very important for all of us to realize populism that came out of the last, you know, financial crash and austerity. That's the fire. That's the flame. Social media just throws an accelerant on it. And, and I think it's very important for us to separate out the things we've got to do on social media to stop and regulate, but also to understand we're in a moment now where people do have genuine concerns and a lack of faith in their institutions. I think that was at the core of Brexit. Uh, and I think social media played a role, disinformation played a role, but it's very important that we keep our eye on the idea that there is parts of our societies that just don't feel connected to the way that they're being governed. And that happened in the US, it happened in Europe, in UK, in Brazil and the Philippines. And that global contagions of, of populism uh, is separate from disinformation. They are connected. But, you know, let's not under, underestimate the, the, the problems that democracies have right now in, in restoring faith in the notion of a democracy um, that does actually, you know, have some respect for the other person's opinion. Mark, that's fascinating. I mean, the one final area I'd be very curious about your views on is mainstream media and the contamination, if you like, of outrage, of social media, of what we see on platforms. I mean, how can journalists keep their own integrity, given the huge competitive environment they're working in now? You've, that's a great question, Francis, because like you say, how can journalists hold on to their integrity? 99% of journalists I know I've worked with, they really do want to be able to work in an environment where they're not being forced you know, to, to get clicks on the online edition or you know, outrageous headlines. 
But that's the nature of the business they're in right now because the traditional media's business model has been almost destroyed by the rise of the platforms. And now you find that this information actually works best when mainstream media pick up you know, a false claim about COVID and put it on the front page. So it would, you know, disinformation, misinformation would not be as big problems as they are if it were not for the amplification of traditional media who are being forced to chase after the click, you know, the popularity to survive. So I think if we want to really solve disinformation, we want the media to return to a way more integral, you know, check and balance in our society. We need to work out how we're going to fund particularly public media. And I don't mean just, you know, the BBCs and the RTEs. I mean, people who are genuinely committed to the idea of shared facts, a public square. And so I think we should be putting in as much effort to finding a new model of support and funding for journalism that's in the public interest uh, as we are on maybe fighting back against these sort of fringe forces, because the two work hand in hand. If we have a journalism that's only about chasing outrage and clicks, we are going to have a problem of disinformation, misinformation. Uh, and journalism, I think, really needs help uh, to secure it for the next generation. And that's why, you know, I'm involved in the Future of Media Commission here in Ireland. And as much as I am focused on disinformation, long term, the future of journalism is vital if we're going to have that strengthening of democracy. I agree with you, but journalists, uh, you know, are it's almost like nirvana, what you describe, expecting journalists uh, to, to fight back the way you're describing, because it seems to me right now, unless we do what you say uh, in relation to protecting journalism, which I think politicians often instinctively react against, um, it's not going to be possible uh, because the forces seem all aligned on one side. Yeah, and I think one of the things the mistakes journalists make is they get very precious, you know, about their role and it's protecting their gatekeeper role. I mean, they have to understand times have changed. Our job as journalists is not to protect our institutions, it's to find ways to create new ways to connect with citizens. And journalists have been very bad, to be honest, in the last 20, 30 years at, at feeling like they're serving citizens. You know, they're always like elite. And I think what we have to do is think about how we can fund local journalism. So that's one of the biggest areas. Can we find ways to give ordinary communities the ability to report on issues that are important to themselves? Can we find ways to reflect diverse voices, voices that have been marginalized, whether by language or by their, their gender or by their class? So journalism has to wake up to the fact that it didn't do a good job of connecting with ordinary people. And the future of journalism will depend on our ability to develop deep relationships with all aspects of society. And that should be, you know, if we're asking for money for journalism to fund it, we have to acknowledge that we have not done as good a job as we should have of reflecting the diversity of our societies. So, you know, a lot of this will be on journalists to accept. We can't continue to be the voice of God telling people they're wrong. We actually have to be right there embedded in communities looking for solutions to their problems. Um, because I think a lot of the anti-media bias, there's a, there's a bit of truth to it. You know, people don't feel connected. So therefore, there's, you know, not ex I'm not looking for money for a blank check for journalism to restore its great glory. This is about change and journalism has to change as well to survive. As we can see from my guests, this is not a straightforward issue. Disinformation brings up a vast array of difficult questions around geopolitics, freedom of speech, censorship, 
democracy, threats to democracy. What I think is very clear at this point, though, is that self-regulation of social media has not worked. Clearly, social media networks have got better at cleaning up their act, but there's still a vast amount of disinformation getting through the cracks. And it is, in a way, I believe, influencing our mainstream media. If we think of Brexit, the false allegations about the results of the recent US presidential election and the constant interference from Russia in Western democracies, the problem of disinformation has developed into such a threat to our democracy that I believe some form of government intervention, legislation is needed. But the key issue is about getting that balance right between freedom of speech and stopping harmful content. But only time will tell if fake news has become too big a beast to control. Thanks to all of my guests for taking part in today's podcast and thank you for listening. I'll be back with another episode of The European Lens very soon.